Will you all turn in your Bible with me, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the table in the back here. My brother David is preaching in our Troy congregation this morning. And so uh, if you're wondering where he and Kathy are, they are doing that and uh, being a blessing to the congregation there. I know they're super excited to see them. I would pray for him, but they're, they start at 9.30, so they're like done already. I mean, it's all right. They come out here and they're like, man, this is great. We get to sleep in. But when you have 15 children, I don't know if you ever get to sleep in, let's be honest. <laughs> for those, we love the Troy. Our Troy friends are the best, but their average age or average number of kids in each family is like seven, something like that. So it's, it's good. Be careful. I know. <laughs> The elder, the el- one of the elders, Don Adam, out there, Lisa, was, uh, we announced that she was pregnant. And he goes, I'm praying for you for twins. I was like, stop it. Stop. I, I know you pray. Stop that. Stop praying that prayer. He said, it'll be fine. You'll be fine. It'll grow you. Whew. We did not have twins. <laughs> Second Timothy chapter 4. When I, was, uh, when I was a little kid, I went with my dad to Raging Rivers or Whitewater or one of those places. Remember Raging Rivers? Raging Rivers. It's cool, it's hot. You can finish any jingle with it's cool and it's hot. Any jingle. Honestly, try it sometime. It'll, it'll blow your mind because it's probably one of the best jingles that's ever been out there. So it was cool and it's hot. And we went out there and um, my dad and I were on this little ride together. And um, I was born, I think at birth I was 47 pounds. So I was a large child. And um, we got on this little roller coaster tube slide thing, water slide together. And it was one of those ones with the like donut double tube thing. You know what I'm talking about? So my dad, who's not a small person, and me, who's pretty much equal to his size at that point, uh, get on this tube and we're getting ready to go. And I was pretty young. And we're at the very top and it just, you descend into darkness as you start, you know? So it's because it's a dark tube thing that you go into and the water's rushing around us and we've climbed, you know, you climb the ladder for like six hours and you're finally at the top and we got climbed onto the tube without flipping over, which is miraculous. And we're sitting in the little tube, and the little guy who works there, this young man who's one of the lifeguards, he's probably 14, not really, but this young guy is working there. I looked at him from the tube, and I very earnestly, and I really meant this question. I said, will will I like this? Because I was nervous. I don't want to, I'm not sure if I want to go at this point. Okay, and he just pushed me. And next thing I, and we're going 100 miles an hour. We almost caught up to the people in front of us. Like, they, I could see them. We weren't supposed to do that. And we're just careening down this thing. I think we went faster than anyone's ever gone. We've set a record at Raging Rivers to go through this tube. Life is like that sometimes. And some people think that the Christian life is like that, where we start off and we're going to be on this ride and it's exciting. And we get on the tube and we get going and there's a lot of unknowns. And you start and you kind of just go through the ups and downs and the dips and the excitement and it's good and it's bad and it's scary and it's awesome and all these things. And all of a sudden you're at the end and you come out into the bright light and you're just in heaven and that's great. And that's what people think the Christian life is like. The problem with that is that there are many currents pushing us in life. And the Christian life is not just falling through a tube. And it certainly is not just going with the flow. And so the reality that we have is that life tends to push us in a lot of directions through the culture or through society or through traditions or through whatever, which are either in agreement with the word of God and how we're to live, or they are another way. 
At this point in 2 Timothy, Paul the Apostle is writing his disciple Timothy, who is taking over a bunch of churches in Ephesus and Asia Minor, and he's leading a bunch of things. He's establishing elders. He's doing a lot of great work. And as he is going through this great work, Paul writes this letter to him to encourage him and instruct him. And 2 Timothy is a really short book. It's only four chapters. It's a great book, rich in content. And also you get to see some of the humanity of it, because at one point Paul's like, hey, can you bring me this cloak? I'm missing it. And it's, it's just real in what's happening. It's also the last letter that Paul is probably going to write to Timothy, who he loves like a son. He knows that he is going to be martyred. He knows that he's going to trial in Rome. He knows that it's toward the end. And he is hoping with joy that he would be able to see Timothy one last time. But really, this letter probably needs to suffice. And so the things he says in it are very important because think about the things that you would write if you only have four chapters, four short little bits to write a letter to your son. What would you want to say if you know it's the last time you're going to write? And so here in chapter 4, this is what he says. Let's start at verse 1 together. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Praise the Lord for his word. It's important to think about this. This this is a charge, the last charge that he's going to give to Timothy. And it sounds like our day, doesn't it? When people having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We live in a day where the flow is strong. The flow of the way that our culture or society or other cultures, we've never lived, think about this for a second, we have never lived in a society that is more internationally entangled, and I say this in a positive way, than ever in history. This moment in history, you can go down the street and encounter cultures and colors and things and cuisines, and that's good. Praise the Lord for that. And also we have influences and flows from everywhere on the planet now that are pushing us down the tube of life, if you will. And we're not just along for the ride, because the reality is, as Paul is telling Timothy, he has a charge before God that he would be ready in season and out of season. I'm going to give you a Latin word for this because it's super cool. Omni tempora peritus. Ready in all seasons. Peritus. So you can think, why am I telling you that? It's Latin. It's not even Greek. It's just a cool word. If I were to have like a cool flag or something, that's what I'd put on it because it's an awesome word. But peritus, this idea of always ready, being prepared in season and out of season. Isn't it funny how God often does things to us and for us and with us out of season? It's usually when we're not expecting it, usually when we're not ready. I played uh, <clears throat> tennis in high school, and uh, I say that, listen, I played tennis in high school, saying it loudly. Then I went in the Army, 
And in the army, my soldiers were like, hey, sir, what'd you do? Did you wrestle? Did you football? Did you just box? Did you just fight guys? What'd you do? I was like, I play tennis. And they're like, oh, at the club? You know, huh, with a cappuccino? Anyway, if you're going in the army, don't play tennis. Play hockey. <laughs> All right, having said that though, I played tennis and I remember playing, and I was never a great tennis player to be honest with you, but I remember playing, and it's a great game. Tennis is really fun, and which is why I played it. It's a great game, come on. Anyway, so you're playing tennis, and I remember playing, and I remember being in my senior year and playing in, and playing in one of the tournaments or whatever, and I had this thought pass through my head of, I'm gonna work on this skill so that next time I can really, I'll do better. And it suddenly occurred to me, there, there's no next time. Senior year, last tournament, this is it. So you either play and have it done, or you don't. In season and out. Sometimes we expect that God's gonna just play t-ball with us. And it's just gonna be on the tee, and we're gonna get to hit it, and it's gonna be great, and everything's done, and oh, it's so nice. But we know the reality of life, ups and downs and turns, and good and bad and flow and it feels like it's coming against us and we don't know and we're crying out to God and in that moment when we're out of season is usually when the Lord says, here it comes buddy, you can hit it. It's, it's real life, isn't it? It's not teed up for us. And it's often in suffering and sacrifice and difficulty and all those things that the Lord does great things when in our own weakness we say it was just Jesus. Here's what I want to tell you today. Over the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at this passage. There are some things that in season, out of season, we need to be prepared to preach the word. We need to be prepared to not just go against the flow. We have to stand on solid ground. And there are things that people with itching ears have found teachers that, that will accommodate their own passions to do whatever they want to do. And so there are truths that we have to hold to. The first truth that we have to hold to is that Jesus Christ is king of kings. And the kingdom of Jesus Christ is over all things. Why am I saying this one? I'm saying this one because there are polls from everywhere, from everywhere, that limit who Jesus is in himself, but also try to dethrone him. Because if his, if his authority doesn't matter, and if his kingdom doesn't exist, then suddenly life is just going down the water slide. Because if we don't have any authority that we're coming to, if we don't have any rule in life that we're actually attaining toward and we're trusting God and we're following his rule and we're honoring Jesus, if we don't have that, then it doesn't matter. Here's what really is important in that. Think about this. Your life is not just about your own happiness. It's really about his glory. When I talk to my kids and I tuck them in at night, I often tell them, I'll walk into the room and I'll say to them, I'll say, good night to my little daughter. I'll say, good night, princess. Good night, daughter of the king. Good night, covenant girl. Good night, kingdom girl. Good night, servant of the most high. Good night, saint. Good night, redeemed of the Lord and beloved. And she's five. So she, the other night she goes, daddy. And I said, yeah, what's, what's wrong, Eden? And she goes, what is a redeemed? And she's, what is a redeemed? But there's a difference between just, good night, princess, I love you, and this is who you are, and you're going to do something for God. And so I tell my boys all the time, I'll say, you're knights in the Lord's kingdom. Really, you're princes with him. Really, you're united with Christ. Really, you're joint heirs with him. Really, everything you do is about seeing him enthroned and high, and God's going to use you in situations where your gifts and your talents are going to be used for the glory of God. And I'm telling my children this, but I'm telling you this, flock. 
God is going to use you because he is seated on the throne, because he is the king of the nations, and because he's chosen you to live in this unprecedented age in 2021 to do something for his glory. Not just to live through life or go down the water slide or just be pushed by the flow or just have life experiences or be happy, but that you and your family and your testimony and your work is going to glorify the king of kings who created the world. That's a different way of living. It's a different mentality to come before the Lord in prayer and see yourself as a prince and as a knight and as his and everything I'm going to do is to enthrone Jesus. Do you remember David and his mighty men? Do you know why the mighty men were so great? It wasn't just the exploits they did, which were amazing. It was because they were united in heart, knowing that God had anointed David. And in one effort together, they were joined to see David installed as king. And those guys would stop at nothing for that king. And so they were amazing. This is why we have stories and fairy tales and things where these things come to our heart and we're like, wow, that's so amazing. And it so appeals to us because it's innate in us spiritually that we would do something for the king of kings, that we would see his glory, that we would see his majesty everywhere we go. So let's look at King David for a second and see what is this king like? How do we think of Jesus as a king? What does that mean? We're going to use super well-known Bible things and look at his life. Before we do that, I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Look with me at verse 14. Deuteronomy 17 verse 14. This is the law. Deuteronomy is, is especially case law, but it's the law of God that's being given out to all the people so that they would understand how they're supposed to live. The people of Israel have just come out of slavery in Egypt, and they're learning what it means to be a nation now before God. They're learning what it means to be his people and not just slaves in a foreign country. And so God gives them the law, and he's changing the very fabric of their society so that they would know and represent this is God's rule in the earth. And so in Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, it says this. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, and nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. And then it goes on to talk about how he needs to write a copy of the law and keep it with him and every day meditating on the law. And his heart is led by where the Lord's word takes him. Is this passage surprising to you? Maybe you've read it before. Here's why it was a little bit surprising to me the first time I read it. It's because I, was, I had always understood that Israel sinned in asking for a king when Saul was installed. If you don't know that history, the Israelites eventually come into the promised land, and they form a nation, and there's leaders put in charge that God puts in charge, and eventually they want a king. And they find the tallest guy. 
who's the most handsome. See there, I was qualified, now I'm disqualified. Tallest guy who's handsome and excited. He looks like, man, this is the guy. He's going to represent us well. And the prophets at the time say, don't, don't follow this. This is not the way you want to go. And all the people say, this is the king we want. And they install Saul as king, and he leads the people into all kind of craziness. And it's not good. Out of that story then, God sends the prophet to a weird tribe in a weird place in a wilderness. And he goes and he finds this family named Jesse. The dad's name is Jesse. And he has all these sons, and he finds the tallest, most handsome son. And the Lord says to the prophet, this is not the one I've anointed to be king. And he keeps going down the line of all these sons, from the best son to the worst son. And he looks at the dad and he says, this is everybody? He says, well, I got one more son. But he's out with the sheep. He's tending the sheep. He's doing the dirtiest jobs. He's not, he's the runt. You don't want him. He says, bring him to me. And so here comes David, this young man, who's short, handsome, short. He's been out in the fields. He's cut his teeth, if you will, trusting God when it's just him and sheep and then dangers. And the Lord says to Samuel the prophet, this is the one I anoint king over Israel. And I'd always heard in Sunday school that Israel had sinned with Saul because they wanted this king and, and they're rebelling against God who is their king. And that's true in one sense, but really God had given a provision already in the law that there would be a king. You see, it was God's intention from the beginning that there would be a king in Israel. It was always his intention. The problem is, the people wanted the king they thought would be the best one. And God had different designs. And so the problem wasn't that the people asked for a king. The problem was that they asked for a king specifically. We want this one. Instead of saying, Lord, you send us a king, and the Lord choosing. And so here now, years have gone by. Saul has led the people into weird things, and he's done a lot of crazy stuff, and he's more advanced in years. And they go into the battle with this country called Philistine. And the Philistines have this champion, and you know this story because it's famous. And they go to fight the, the Philistines, and they're in this great valley, and they line up. You know how in the old movies everybody lines up and they rush in to fight? That's like what they're doing. And the Philistines, as the fighting starts, have this champion. And this champion is eight feet tall. His name's Goliath. He's huge. He's a giant. He's the beast of all the men. He's the best fighter. His sword is so heavy, guys can't pick it up. His spear is so big, it looks like something out of a manufacturing building. It's huge. His shield armor bearer guy can hardly keep up. His actual shield he's using is impenetrable. Nobody can defeat this guy. Everybody's terrified of him. And laughing, he stands up and he says, your God is ridiculous. And I'll tell you right now, I have such confidence in myself. You bring out your best fighter and I'll fight. Whoever loses will be the slaves of the other person. And here's Saul, the king. He's got glory, he's got horses, he's got money, he's got armor, and he hides in this tent. And so David, who's been anointed by the prophet, comes down to bring provisions to his family. Because at that time, it wasn't like you had just the, the big tents and everybody eats. You bring your own provisions family by family. So he brings bread and different things to find his brothers who are fighting in the army, and he finds them 17 years old. He's just a kid. He comes down, but he's been anointed by God, and he sees this giant speaking. Turn with me in your Bible to 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17. 
Here's what the Word says, starting at verse 31. 1 Samuel 17, 31. David, seeing this Goliath, this giant, says, I'll fight this guy. I have faith in the Lord. And so in verse 31, it says this, When the words that David spoke were heard, they were repeated before Saul. And he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. So Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine and fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear that took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Now imagine for just a moment, you're the king of a nation, or the queen of a nation. And some great challenge has arisen, has arisen and a 17-year-old walks in front of you and goes, I got this. I got this. Are you going to send that 17-year-old? No way. No way. But the whole army has fled in terror from this guy. Saul himself just needs somebody to go out there. And so what does Saul the king do? The king, remember, he's big and David's small, says to David, you know what? I'll equip you with my best armor. Saul's heart really is not to help protect David. Saul's hope really is that he goes out there, he looks like Saul, looks like the king. And all the people watching are like, oh, the king, he's fighting for us. This is great. Oh, that's what should have happened. Uh, that, right? Yes. Okay, this is good. That's what they're hoping will happen. And so Saul is hoping, oh, send this kid. He'll go out there. He'll wear my armor. Everybody will think, Psh, this is good. And he's so full of faith, he might just do it. And then that'll be good. That's what he's thinking. And so David tries on this armor. He's like, this, I can't. You're huge, sir, with respect. I can't wear this. It's, all, it's too flappy on me. I can't move. So he takes off all this armor and sets it down. He says, I'll just, I'm just going to go. The Lord delivered me from the bear, from the lion. I got my slingshot. I'll use that. He doesn't even take a sword with him. He's a slingshot. He comes down into the valley. Let's read on in the story. Verse 41. Verse 41. And the Philistine moved toward and came near to David, his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with sword and with a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, and all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you 
into our hand. And then they rush together into this fight. And as they're rushing together, David takes out a smooth stone that he had taken from the brook nearby at the river. He puts it in a sling. He starts to whirl it around. He throws it, and this rock comes out, whirling and hits Goliath straight on the forehead so hard that the stone sinks into his skull, which is miraculous. And in one stroke, the Philistine, the champion, falls dead. David takes his sword and can barely lift it, cuts off the guy's head. That's gross. And the day is the Lord's. Now, when I grew up, I heard many a sermon about there are Goliaths in your life. There's flow coming against you. You're going down the, the tube. And as you confront these Goliaths, if you have faith like David, you can bring them down with just a stone. And I'm here to tell you that's true in some ways. But the reality of the story is not just you can do it. The reality of the story is that even David's brothers are watching with terror as this boy runs out to fight this giant. And the whole fate of the nation hangs in the balance. And the guy who's the king, who's the one that everybody chose, the one that everybody thought was the best, the one whose armor is the most beautiful, the guy who's the tallest, a head taller than anybody around him, the one they said, this surely should be our king. He's hiding in his tent, wondering what's gonna happen. And instead, this boy goes out there without even a sword or a shield, and he's got a slingshot. What's gonna happen? Because if he loses, we are done. We are done. The only thing that's keeping this giant army from killing every one of us is that this giant dude is waiting for a champion to come and fight him. And so they're watching and witnessing as this boy in faith who's anointed to be the real king comes down into the valley with a sense of duty behind him. What is the duty? Is it to deliver everyone? Partly. It's the honor of God. It's that he will not be defied by this guy who is saying these things. We are the people of God. We know his word. And I am standing on the truth of his deliverance, not just for me, but because he is the king of kings. And you will not speak against him. And the whole tide of everything is against this kid. The flow is surely against him. And he whirls around a slingshot. You know, Goliath is in armor. It talks in other places about how big his helmet is and his shield and all this kind of stuff. It's a miracle, a miracle that this pebble brings that giant down. A miracle. Because the Lord fights for David. It's everything he said. He didn't say, I'm really good at fighting bears. I got this. He said, I have fought bears and the Lord delivered me. And so now he's going down in the valley to fight for the Lord's honor and to deliver the people. And why is he doing that? Because he's anointed to be the king. He's just resting in the anointing that he already has to trust God at his own word that God is going to make do all the things that he said. And in this story, we are not David. We're not the ones rushing down in the valley. We're really the ones standing on the side watching and saying, I, 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 what's happening? Are we going to be okay? Should we run away now? What should we do? And then this David goes down there and fights this giant. And in that moment, the mighty men stand up and they say, this guy, wherever he goes, we will go. Whatever he does, we will do. He surely should be the king. Surely. Then they find out about the anointing. He really is the king. 
anything he wants, I will do for David. And in one heart to install him as king. Why? Because God sent a champion. He sent a champion who would go and fight for the people. And as we watch, we say, that's a king. I will follow him anywhere. Years and years and years later, God would send another champion, a descendant of David's, who rightfully would be the one, the king, to take the throne. And he arose on the scene. He was smarter than everybody. He was purer than everybody. He was better than everybody. He was holy. At his word, people were healed. He was, had wisdom that just flowed out of him. He said things in the synagogue that made people wonder. Everybody around him said, surely this guy can't just be a carpenter's son. He was not much to look at. But something in this guy, something in him was higher. And his disciples said, whatever we need to do, we will do to make you king. They thought that that meant, like David and Goliath, that this king would go into a, a frenzy in a battle with maybe just a slingshot and bring down all the Roman hordes to free the people so that they would be free of oppression and they could be their own nation again. They thought maybe this guy would deliver them militarily. But as they continued walking with Jesus, they found that he was delivering people in a way that they could hardly understand, that he was freeing them from things that they couldn't hardly wrap their minds around, that with just a word he could heal or raise from the dead people who were in other towns, that this guy had an authority that was different than what they expected because this guy was the anointed of the Lord, because this guy is the Lord. And as he walked in healing people and changing lives and doing all these things, he would also descend into a valley to be God's champion for us. Because all of the world, the current of everything, was against all of God's people to keep everyone in oppression to sin that we could not live without God. And so the Lord sent his own son who would go for us to be our champion, who would not take a slingshot, he would not take a sword, he would take off his armor. He would go as a sheep before the shearers without even opening his mouth. He would stand condemned before the nation that his disciples thought he was going to break them free from. And instead, he would go to a cross for us. But on that cross, as Jesus died, he threw down principalities and powers. Colossians tells us that he threw down all those oppressive things, that he defeated sin, he defeated death because he really died for us. Because God's demonstration of love was not just freeing people militarily, but was that God showed his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, enemies of God, he delivered us because we were in the camp against him. And if he had come in militarily, he would have wiped us out. But instead, out of love, he endured the cross for us, taking the punishment for our sin that we could be made the righteousness of God. He died fulfilling all of the punishment. He died to bring us back to God. And he didn't stay dead, but he rose again because our king, the champion, the one in the line of David who naturally should be king, was demonstrated to be the king over all the earth, and that his kingdom would be over all things, that his rule would never end, and even death could not stop him. And so he rose from the grave. He came up and we saw this brightness of who he is, that he is the Lord Almighty forever. Jesus Christ didn't stay dead on a cross. Jesus Christ didn't stay a baby in a manger. 
Jesus Christ didn't just become a good man that would teach nice things to people. He died for us. He rose again. He's out of the tomb. And where is he now? He's seated on the throne because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The Bible tells us that when Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, he came before the throne and he came up the throne and sat on it. How is that possible? Because he's a man. He took on flesh. How could a man come on the throne of God? Because he is God. He is God. And he has, by all the work that he has done, received a crown that's better than any crown, a name that is higher than any name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, I sat in my backyard last night looking at the trees in my backyard. Trees are fun. I like trees. One tree, healthy. Other tree, healthy. Third tree, infested with bugs. Can't get rid of them. I don't know what's going on. And suddenly I looked... I looked at the tree. I'll tell you what happens. We'll see what God does. I looked at the tree, and I was like, bugs! It was like 10 o'clock at night. Maybe I shouldn't have been so loud, but I did. Bugs! In Jesus' name, you will come out of that tree. Get out. Lord, thank you for preserving my tree. I'm trusting you. Why did I do that? I did that because I'm preparing for the sermon, and everything in me saw Jesus Christ seated on the throne, he's over all things. And bugs in a tree is the least of all those things. Because this King Jesus, at his name, every knee bows, every tongue confesses. That means there's no addiction. There's no sin. There's no brokenness. There's no family junk. There's no nation on earth. There's no thought process on earth. There's no ideology. There's no ism that can stand before the King of Kings. And our allegiance is to Jesus Christ, the Lord, who's given us a mandate not to bring bugs out of trees, but that we would make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to do everything that he has said. That in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we baptize them, they would be transformed into new creations with him. He's about people and changing and nations shaped and Hearts changed and transformed and relationships brought together and addictions falling apart. And he's about sin dealt with and the restored life in his kingdom. As you walk down the street, if you just are pushed by the flow, if everywhere you go, it's just wherever. And you see dirt everywhere and that's just where we live and it's no big deal. Change your mind's thinking now to see the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ because you are his ambassador, his knight, his prince, his princess, united with him, joined with him, that you would walk with him to bring his kingdom rule everywhere you go. Whether it's a tree with bugs, whether it's a person living in sin, or whether it's a situation to speak into to show what God's righteousness is about. He's the king. He's the Lord. And just like those watching David, whatever that king does, I'll follow him anywhere. Settle in your heart. Wherever our king goes, I'll follow him anywhere. When I was in the military, I used to have to do all these certifications and stuff. And one of the certifications we had to do was we had to uh, fight a guy, basically. And the, the rules in the fighting of the guy was you had to get this guy and get him to the ground, and you were not allowed to, to punch or do anything like that. So he could do anything he wants to you. You've got to subdue him, get him on the ground. So I was, I, was a police, I was a military police officer. So think of like arresting somebody or you know, any of those kind of things. You're not just like, it's different. So they found this guy who looked like Mike Tyson. He had no neck. He was head, shoulders, 
He was like shaped like that. Basically, if I stood this table up, that's him, the head on it. And he was huge. And the day before, he had broken my friend's ribs in the fight and sent, sent him to the hospital. And so it's my turn, and I'm fighting Mike Tyson. And you can't fight him. You just have to take it and get him on the ground. That's it. And um, I was a good Christian boy, so I wasn't in a lot of, I, was, I didn't have street fights growing up. Like, that was not my life, right? So here's this guy, and I was nervous. I'm not going to tell you. I was nervous. And he, I was taller than him, kind of bigger than him, but he was just a that. And so we get ready to go, and he's got his boxing gloves on, and I can just see it in his eyes. He's like, I'm going I'm to hurt this guy. I could, I could tell. And so we start going, and I came up to him, and he clocked me in the head. I, I mean, I saw stars. Everything went black for a second. And I just, he hit me so hard, so hard. And it pushed me back. And all of a sudden, all I felt was rage, rage. And I grabbed that guy and got him on the ground in about three seconds. And, it, and I'm telling you that story for this reason. The world is going to punch you in the face. The world is punching you in the face with ideologies, with sin, with ridiculous things everywhere you turn. And the Christian slums in Karachi are the evidence of it. Nobody cares. At the end of the day, people will do with itching ears, finding teachers to justify anything they want and what makes them happy. And the ideology of the day is, just you do you. Live your best life. As long as you're happy, it's good. But we have a king on the throne. It's time to let some holy rage come out of you a little bit. And I'm not saying tackle people to the ground. I'm not saying our weapons are not physical. It's time to start praying for your family members, for your neighbors, for your friends, for relationships, for people at work. It's time to start seeing Christ seated on the throne. And instead of you just sort of throwing things up to God and maybe he'll bless me today as you go down that big tube of life. Instead, look up. See him seated there. See yourself before him seated with him. Look over and say, Jesus, this isn't right. What am I, what should I say? And he will give you the words. He will give you the words. And then with gentleness and love, just like Paul was telling Timothy, do the work of ministry to say, I need to tell you a better way. Our king is seated on the throne. This is what he says. Our king died and rose again. Here's what salvation looks like. Our king is on the throne. Bugs, get out of the tree. And the tree, it may live or die. I don't know. It's a tree. I don't really care about the tree. I mean, I do. It's a tree. But what I'm saying is the mission is so much bigger. His throne is so much bigger. His world is so much bigger. And it belongs to him. I'm telling us this because it's time for that holy rage. It's time to do something for him. It's time to use your gifts and talents to see Jesus glorified and not just be happy. Because the world is pushing you, pushing you, pushing you. It's all about you and happiness. Take a look at Jesus sometime. See what he says. How do you do that? Come to the Word of God. Read 2 Timothy this week. It's four chapters. Read it this week and say, Lord, ignite my heart for you. That I would see you like those people saw David in the valley. That, Lord, anywhere you go, you're my champion. Anything you do, I'll follow you. And then whatever he tells you to do, do it. And then on Sunday, 
come and testify. I did this, and everybody will be built up. Everybody. Because it's, we're doing it. And God is glorified. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are so good. Lord, thank you that you are over all things. We trust you, Lord, with our life. And Father, because you are so majestic, Lord, because you have installed your king on the throne over Zion, Lord, we submit to you and we say, Lord, have your way with us. Anywhere you go, you're our champion. We will follow you. Lord, we submit before you addictions and sin and brokenness. Lord, cleanse us in our own hearts because of Jesus that we would be clean and ready and pure through your gospel to do whatever you call us to do. But Lord, for our neighbors, for our family members, for our world, for St. Louis, Lord, for Pakistan, for all these places, Lord, burn in us your heart, God, that we would see you, Lord, that everywhere you go, we go. Lord, whatever you care about, we care about. Lord, make us agents of restoration for you, that we would do great work for you, in you, by you. Because at the end of the day, Lord, we know it's not by our might or our power. It's by you and your word. And so we come to you, Father. Use us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Be blessed this week. May you know the grace of the Father. May you know the rule of the Son. And may you know the power of the Holy Spirit as you serve him. God bless you. You are dismissed. Have a fantastic day.